and welcome to this morning's program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program today features Jeffrey Sachs, renowned economist, professor, author, and leader in economic sustainability. He's joined in conversation today by Larry Paschal, partner at Haynes Boone and council vice chairman. Together, they'll discuss the impact of global conflict, conflict on economic sustainability. I'd like to thank Kurt Kennedy also, who introduced us to Jeff Sachs via his wife and made this event possible. As always, a special thanks to our institutional partners, AT&T, Dallas Baptist University, Dallas College, Frost Bank, Harwood International, Haynes Boone, Larry, thank you again, Lockheed Martin, NEC Corporation of America, PNC Bank, and Sidley Austin. If you are a member of the World Affairs Council, we are a members-based organization, and we need you. Please join us. With over 90 councils across the country, be a part of the national and global conversations happening near you. Lastly, by engaging with the council, you know firsthand how powerful collective curiosity can be. Help us inspire more civil discourse this season, which we desperately need, by donating to our annual fund that's going on right now. It's from Division to Dialogue on our website at dfw.org is where you can give, and we really appreciate that. I'll now pass it over to our council's board vice chairman, Larry Paschal. Larry is chair of the America's Practice Group at Haynes Boone. For more than 25 years, Larry has been an expert in cross-border transactions across diverse sectors, real estate, energy, agribusiness, and technology. Larry is fluent in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, and we are very lucky for his wise counsel and input always. Larry, thank you very much again. Dr. Sachs, thank you as well. And Larry, I'm going to leave it with you now. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Liz, uh, for those uh, initial remarks. I'm very delighted, of course, uh, to uh, work with the council over these years. Our speaker today, Jeffrey Sachs, is a world-renowned economist, best-selling author, and thought leader in the area of sustainable development. He is widely recognized for developing strategies to address complex challenges including extreme poverty, climate change, international debt and financial crises, national economic reforms, and the control of pandemic and epidemic diseases. Dr. Sachs serves as director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he holds the rank of university professor, the university's highest rank. Sachs was director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University from 2002 to 2016. Prior to joining Columbia, Sachs spent over 20 years as a professor at Harvard University, most recently as the Galen L. Stone Professor of International Trade. A native of Detroit, Michigan, Sachs earned his BA, MA, and PhD degrees at Harvard. He is president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, co-chair of the Council of Engineers for the Energy Transition, acad academician, of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences at the Vatican, Commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development, Tan Sri Jeffrey Chi, Honorary Distinguished Professor at Sunway University, and Sustainable Development Goals Advocate, excuse me, for UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. From 2001 to 2018, Sachs served as a Special Advisor 
the UN Secretary Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon from 2008 to 2016, and most recently, Antonio Guterres from 2017 to 2018. Sachs has authored and edited numerous books, including three New York Times bestsellers, The End of Poverty, published in 2005, Commonwealth Economics for a Crowded Planet in 2008, and The Price of Civilization, 2011. His most recent books include The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions, published in 2020, and Ethics and Action for Sustainable Development, published in 2022. He was twice named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders and has received 42 honorary doctorate degrees and his recent awards include the 2022 Tang Prize in Sustainable Development, the 2015 Blue Planet, Blue Planet Prize, which is the leading global prize for environmental leadership, the Legion of Honor by decree of the President of the Republic of France, and the Order of the Cross from the President of Estonia. Dr. Thank, Dr. Sachs, excuse me, thank you for joining the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and its sister chapters around the country today. And we are looking forward to your thoughts on this pressing topic. Larry, thank you very much. And uh, thanks to the World Affairs Council. Uh, we have a, a brief time together to talk about uh, uh, issues of uh, global scope. So uh, I wanna thank you uh, for the chance uh, and plunge right into it. There are three conflicts uh, that I want to mention briefly. Uh, two of them are, of course, hot conflicts, raging wars, Ukraine and Gaza. And the third conflict is uh, so far a trade technology and financial conflict between the United States and the People's Republic of China, which threatens to become hotter potentially over uh, Taiwan. The world is uh, therefore in a very fraught uh, and tense period. The war in Ukraine uh, has uh, killed or seriously wounded hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, it has destroyed large parts of uh, Ukraine uh, and it continues to be a, a raging war that has uh, ever-present threats of escalation uh, between uh, nuclear superpowers. It's very dangerous. The war in Gaza uh, is, uh, sad to say, a massacre uh, that is underway uh, by Israel uh, in Gaza, uh, where 30,000 people so far, uh, of whom 70% are women and children, have uh, died since the terrorist attack by Hamas on October 7 and the launch of uh, Israel's uh, invasion of Gaza ostensibly to uh, defeat Hamas since October 7. Uh, with uh, respect to China, as I say, uh, the conflict is a, uh, a financial and technical, technological conflict but uh, there are ever-present threats uh, of uh, something more dangerous. Let me say at the outset, all of these crises uh, were avoidable, uh, and all of them uh, need to be stopped by diplomacy. 
Uh, I very much appreciate the title of your program from division to dialogue. I think the greatest shortage in the world today is dialogue. Uh, we don't engage in it. Uh, it's a bad habit, in my view, of the United States uh, approach. President uh, Putin uh, had his interview with Tucker Carlson a couple nights ago. I would encourage people to watch it seriously, not to have it filtered through the mainstream media, but actually to watch it uh, because it was extremely interesting, extremely detailed. And the overriding message, which I believe to be true from my own very extensive engagement with Russia, is that Russia wants dialogue and negotiation, not war and that the United States uh, has been the one to resist uh, any kind of negotiation. The fact of the matter is uh, there has been no discussion between President Biden and President Putin uh, since uh, the start of the special military operation on February 24th, 2022. I deeply bemoan this fact because as I speak to senior Russian officials and senior American officials all the time uh, and have since before this conflict, I believe that uh, this conflict would end rather straightforwardly with negotiations. Let me explain quickly my own understanding of the Ukraine war, the war in Gaza, and the tensions with China. They're a little bit heterodox, let's say. They're not what you would read in the newspapers, but uh, they are based on intensive decades long experience that I have actually in all three places uh, in uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, in the Middle East and in China. Uh, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, let me say at the outset, I was an economic advisor to President Gorbachev, an economic advisor to President Yeltsin and an economic advisor to President Kuchma of Ukraine. I've seen both sides. I don't take sides other than to want peace. In my interpretation, very unpopular in U.S. government circles, uh, this is a war over NATO enlargement. My own view is just as the United States would not for one moment sit still if Mexico and China decided to put Chinese military bases uh, along the Rio Grande, I don't think Russia could have been expected to sit still as the United States planned to put NATO bases into Ukraine and into Georgia, not our Georgia, uh, Georgia, the country on the eastern end of the Black Sea. My understanding is that the U.S. from the early 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, aimed to weaken Russia, even though Russia was a post-communist society looking to normalize relations with the West. The U.S. view was that Russia is too big, too dangerous, and needs to be weakened further. Even decolonized was a frequent term used in Washington. And a core instrument of that was NATO enlargement. NATO enlargement was in direct violation of promises made by James Baker III, 
uh, and by President uh, George H.W. Bush Sr. Uh, and by uh, Chancellor Helmut Kohl to Gorbachev and then to Yeltsin uh, in uh, the early period 1990 to 1992. The U.S. said no NATO enlargement in return for German reunification and uh, the uh, end of the Warsaw Pact military alliance. As soon as the Soviet Union ended in December 1991, the United States reneged on this commitment and began to plan for NATO enlargement. President uh, Bill Clinton was the president who uh, broke the promise uh, in action with the admission of Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic to NATO at the end of the 1990s. Uh, the United States took other actions to weaken Russia uh, at this time, uh, including the 78 days of bombing Serbia, a close Russian ally in 1999, and including uh, CIA activities to support Chechen rebels in the Caucasus uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. The U.S. Uh, uh, left the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty unilaterally in 2002, further poisoning the relations. It expanded NATO to seven more countries in 2004, further poisoning the relations. This was to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Slovenia. And then the coup de grace was to commit in 2008 at the Bucharest NATO summit to enlarge NATO to Ukraine and to Georgia. The plan that Zbigniew Brzezinski had spelled out a decade earlier was to surround Russia in the Black Sea region uh, with Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia, all NATO countries surrounding Russia's naval fleet in Sevastopol. Ukraine didn't <laughs> cooperate because they elected a president in 2009, Viktor Yanukovych, who supported neutrality, not NATO membership. And the United States uh, launched a covert operation to overthrow Yanukovych in February 2014. This put us on a path to war. In uh, December 2021, uh, President Putin put on the table a draft agreement between Russia and the United States on security arrangements based on no NATO enlargement to uh, Ukraine. This was the last chance for an off-ramp. Uh, I spoke with the White House at the time, begged them, take the off-ramp, don't go to war, because NATO enlargement is a red line for Russia and a very bad idea. And uh, But Biden did not want to negotiate the uh, war intensified with the special military operation, whose intention was to force Ukraine to the negotiating table. Within days of the uh, February 24th military incursion into Ukraine, Zelensky said, let's have neutrality. And Russia and Ukraine actually reached an agreement uh, initialed in uh, Ankara, Turkey, where the mediators were bringing the two sides together, 
in March 2022. Biden rejected the agreement, told the Ukrainians, keep fighting, we'll arm you, we'll isolate Russia, we'll destroy Russia, and so forth. This was, again, the gamble. It was a terrible gamble. Uh, it meant that the war has now gone on with maybe 500,000, maybe a million Ukrainians killed and wounded since March 2022. Uh, as you know, the Senate yesterday voted another $61 billion uh, for Ukraine. This is only killing Ukrainians, only prolonging agony, solving nothing, because this war continues to be about the resistance of the United States to acknowledge that expanding NATO to Ukraine is a non-starter and Russia will oppose it up to and including nuclear war if that were required. This is a absolutely terrible, mistaken policy of the United States. It's destroying Ukraine. When it comes to Israel, the situation is uh, similarly uh, uh, of the nature that this war could end today. But it is uh, Israeli recalcitrance uh, backed by unconditional U.S. support uh, that prevents that. The essence of the problem in Israel has been the case for now 57 years since the 1967 war. Either there will be a Palestinian state or there will be a state of war. And for a long time, uh, Israeli politics supported a two-state solution. But in the last 25 years, uh, Israel turned more and more uh, religiously militaristic and religiously nationalistic with hundreds of thousands of settlers in the occupied Palestinian territories and it, now a cabinet that steadfastly resists any talk of any Palestinian political rights other than subservience or ethnic cleansing. I'm not exaggerating. This is the stated positions of ministers like the finance minister Sp Smotrich, the interior minister Ben Gavir, the defense minister uh, Gallant, uh, who represent parties that came to power on the basis of greater Israel, meaning Israeli political control over all of Palestine, including 7 million Palestinians. This is the root of the crisis. October 7 was a terrorist attack, but to respond to a terrorist attack by the destruction of Gaza is because of the real political objective of the Israeli government led by Netanyahu, which is to maintain and secure full Israeli control over Palestine. This is not my interpretation or interpolation. These are the stated daily goals of Israel. They're not American policy. President Biden says our policy is a two-state solution. But President Biden is a very weak president and while the U.S. says we believe in a two-state solution, the actual policy is unconditional military and financial support for Israel. And so Israel dictates the terms of U.S. policy right now, which I think is a shame and a huge mistake. 
it is leading to a disaster. The International Court of Justice uh, ruled that there are plausible reasons to believe that Israel is committing genocide according to the terms of the 1948 Genocide Convention. I have, uh, of course, uh, read in detail uh, the submissions by South Africa and others to the court and the court's ruling and have uh, some experience on this issue. I believe that Israel is absolutely in violation of the 1948 uh, Genocide Convention, which is a dire place to be. But the United States is complicit in this because of the unconditional nature of the U.S. support. When it comes to China, my own opinion is that China's big crime is to have so many people. And uh, I mean that facetiously in the sense that China's big problem is it's a big country. And therefore, American policymakers view it intrinsically as a threat to U.S. full spectrum dominance. Remember that our formal U.S. government and military policy is full spectrum dominance, that the United States should dominate any other potential competitor in the world. We cannot do so vis-a-vis -vis China other than leading to an open war. China will not be dominated by the United States. It would cooperate, but it will not be dominated. So the U.S. goal of full spectrum dominance, in my view, is a direct threat to the peace. It manifests itself, especially in Taiwan. Taiwan is a part of China, uh, full stop. This is our diplomacy. This is China's position. And it is the position of the Republic of, uh, of China as well, based in Taiwan. This is the basis of China's international diplomacy and of every country that has diplomatic relations with China. In my view, there will be no war by China, by the mainland, let me say, by the PRC to conquer uh, Taiwan, unless the United States heavily arms Taiwan and the Taiwanese politicians or and or the Taiwanese politicians declare independence, in which case there will absolutely be a war. I view the situation in Taiwan as I view the situation in Ukraine, which is that Taiwan is a firm, absolute reddest of red lines for the PRC. I bemoan every time that a politician like Nancy Pelosi takes it uh, on herself to fly to Taiwan over the objections of the People's Republic, the government in Beijing. You could say, well, she can do what we want or the United States can do what it wants, but it will lead to war if we continue on this absolutely provocative path. I'll end here just by saying we avoid war by being prudent. We avoid war by having mutual respect with other countries. We avoid war by having dialogue with our counterparts. We don't avoid war by pumping our supposed allies with weaponry that are taken as a direct threat by our would-be adversaries. 
So arming Ukraine or arming Taiwan is a direct provocation. And we should avoid direct provocations. The world is too dangerous. I should say in one sentence, the consequences of these wars, which I didn't talk about at length, are that it has put Europe into a deep economic recession. Germany is completely at a standstill. The world economy is destabilized, but the human consequences and the potential catastrophe that can come through further escalation are still absolute reasons why we should be entering dialogue to end these wars based on politics, not on military dominance, not on full spectrum dominance, which is an illusion, but rather on diplomacy. So let me stop there uh, and turn it back over to you, Larry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Sachs, for your remarks. And uh, we have a couple minutes and I have the chat line open just in case. Uh, but let me uh, line up a couple questions for you, if I could. Two, a little bit more specific and maybe one more philosophical. One talking about Ukraine, one talking about uh, the relationship with the Republic of China and China, and then uh, maybe a philosophical one that you talked about in terms of uh, the U.S. is kind of turn away from diplomacy. Uh, as to Ukraine, you've talked about uh, uh, your view on the matter and the importance of reaching a piece of peaceful uh, accord. Could you lay out a little bit more if you were in the uh, in the State Department, so to speak, what the core pieces of that accord would look like? Um, if you could, uh, absolutely, uh, yeah. Let me do that uh, quickly in one minute, just to say. If we had done this in 2008, uh, we would just have had peace and Russia would have had a lease uh, on uh, its naval base in Sevastopol. Uh, if we had done this with the Minsk II agreements, Russia would uh, keep Crimea, but the Donbas would be Ukrainian and there would be peace. Uh, if we were today to negotiate peace, the basis would be Ukrainian neutrality, Russian control over Crimea, which I think is a permanent feature now given the history, probably uh, Russian control over uh, all or parts of the Donbas, but the basis would be neutrality and some territorial uh, uh, reassignment after two years of open war. In other words, my view is that the terms that Ukraine will get have worsened by the month because Ukraine is on the losing side on the battlefield. The longer this war continues, the more Ukraine stands to lose. But I know, as a, because Russia said it, by the way, as of December 2021, the Donbass was not going to be part of Russia. Uh, what Russia wanted was neutrality. Uh, you, Crimea as part of Russia and autonomy for the Donbass region. That is autonomy within a sovereign Ukraine. So I don't know exactly the contours, but the essence of the agreement is neutrality for Ukraine and then to negotiate the terms of normalization and peace. The longer this goes on, not only the more people that die, the more cost but also, in my view, the great likelihood of worsening 
terms for Ukraine because Ukraine is on the losing end on the battlefield. Do you envision that Ukraine could retain the right to join the European Union, which of course is a non-military organization? Absolutely. I think there's a sharp difference between the EU and NATO. Next question really quickly, I know our time is limited. What would you do to reset our bilateral economic and uh, uh, geopolitical relationship with China in light of what you've touched upon in terms of Taiwan? I would uh, stop arming Taiwan. I would call for peaceful relations across the straits, and I would enter into what we used to have, which is a rather bureaucratic but ongoing high-level dialogue between China and the United States. China is a highly sophisticated administrative state. I know it. I have uh, lots of experience dealing with China. It needs a serious, sustained dialogue because it's we have complex relations, but they could be peaceful and highly constructive. So I would maintain the one child, one child, I would maintain the one China policy, excuse me. Uh, I would absolutely be clear uh, that we are not meddling in Taiwan. I would stop unilateral arms shipments to Taiwan as per the 1982 communique on this issue, which said we promised to phase out arms flows to Taiwan. We promised 42 years ago, it's time that we honor our word. And then I believe we can have mutually beneficial relations because trade with China is good for us, good for our economy, good for China, good for the world. Final question, a broader theme, and that has to do with your theme in terms of um, the tilt in US foreign policy toward a more aggressive one away from kind of dialogue and diplomacy, which I think is more of a product than just this Biden administration argument. That's correct. Maybe could you speak about why you think that that tilt away from traditional U.S. diplomacy has occurred in, in kind of broader policymaking, foreign policymaking circles? It's, it's quite clear that in 1992, and it's filled in all our documents, U.S. policymakers of both parties and the, the permanent state said, we are now the unipolar power. We have no peers. We have no restraint. We are the most powerful country, including the ancient Roman Empire uh, that has ever bestrode the earth. We can do what we want. Now, this kind of hubris is always the pride before the fall, if I may say so. It was wrong then analytically, and it is deeply wrong today. I can tell you in 1992, nobody foresaw the rise of China the way that it has come. But the idea was we have no pure competitor as far as the eye can see and as many decades as the eye can see. And that's why we don't need diplomacy. War can settle the issues. War in Iraq, war or overthrowing other governments or expanding NATO, it's ours to, uh, to take. That was the view. You can find it implicitly uh, and sometimes explicitly in leaked documents, but implicitly in our national security documents, our foreign policy documents, uh, our military strategy documents dating back to 1992. Dr. Thank Dr. Sox, thank you so much for your remarks on these pressing issues. Let me turn it back over to Liz for final remarks. 
Thank you. Yes, just want to thank you both, Dr. Sachs. Thank you so much for your expertise on this. A lot to think about there. It was a really interesting presentation. Thank you for that and for sharing your, your wisdom. And Larry, always really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. And to everyone, I wish you an excellent day. And we will see you on Thursday evening for a program with Mark McKinnon, political strategist and advisor. And he is the co-creator of Showtime series, The Circus. You don't want to miss it. It's the pulse on politics. I'll be in conversation with him Thursday evening. Sign up on our website and everyone have a great day. Thanks again.